Well, please, please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. As always, you'll be helped to keep your Bible open so you can read along with me. I'll be referring back to these verses often. Today, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through chapter 11, verse 1. Swords and rewards. This will be our last sermon in the gospel according to Matthew for, for some time as we finish this section of the book. Matthew 10, 34 through 11, 1. If, if I were to show you a picture of me from my years in college, you might, you might hardly recognize me. Sure, the, the same facial features and all, but I had collar-length bleached blonde hair, no beard, skinny jeans, and a band t-shirt, a messenger bag, and a cow print hat. If my wife here were here today, I'm sure she'd be happy to show you photographic evidence. And for that, I'm thankful she's not. But the years have, have gone on, and for the most part, my fashion sense has had a complete reversal. And, and I imagine, for some of you, you can relate. You look at pictures from 15 or, or 30 years ago and think, my, how much I've, I've changed. Our fashion sense is just one indication of what is inevitable in, in life. Change. None of us begins the way that we, we end. In far more than hairstyle, life involves transformation. And that's often a, a good thing. Well, the, the, the most important transformation, the most important change that we might undergo has nothing to do with our appearances. It has to do with our orientation to God and in God our orientation to everyone else. As, offenses, as offensive as you might find my former fashion sense to be, we are, are all born offenders of God. In sin, by, by nature, we are His enemies and in league with all who rebel against Him. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, God offers all people new life in His family, and with that, a whole new orientation to Him and to, to everyone else. So I, I wonder, have you experienced that kind of, of reorientation, a, a radical change in, in your life, worked by God, in how you relate to Him and in Him, everyone else? Changes in who opposes you, who you love, and who you serve. Well, in, in our passage this morning, as Jesus finishes preparing His disciples for their coming journey as His messengers, He is going to teach them and us that, that life in His kingdom means a radical reorientation to all of our relationships. Jesus radically reorients who opposes us, who we love, and who we serve. Let's read Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. After I read, I'll lead us in a short prayer for, for God's help. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you this morning for again gathering us by your grace as your family, as adopted sons and daughters of the King. Our Father, as we come now to your word, Lord, that you would reveal to us the glories of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we think of these, these weighty truths, the radical reorientation that comes with our faith in Jesus, or that you would give us grace to hear and believe. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, it's always helpful to start with a headline. What's the article about? So our main idea this morning is is this, what, what I've already said. Jesus radically reorients who opposes us, who we love, and who we serve. Let me say that again. Jesus radically reorients who opposes us, who we love, and who we serve. In his last words instructing his disciples for their mission, Jesus teaches that that their mission will involve inevitable separation between those who follow him and those who do not. Even among their their closest relationships in, in the family, faith in Christ will result in divisions. Jesus goes on to call his disciples to a love of God that takes precedent over every other human relationship, even our relationship to ourselves in self-denial. And in that love, we serve those who are weak, despised, and little in the world for his sake. Jesus radically reorients who opposes us, who we love, and who we serve. We'll track through this passage with three points this morning. First, Jesus reorients who opposes us, that in verses 34 through 36. Second, Jesus reorients who we love in 37 through 39. And finally, third, Jesus reorients who we serve in 40 through 42. So let's start first. Jesus reorients who opposes us. Look again with me at verse 34. There he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Last week, we considered Jesus' instruction to his disciples that they should expect persecution. There he predicted that his disciples will be delivered over to courts. They'll be flogged, hated by all, and even put to death for his name's sake. Well, imagine if if you're one of his disciples 
They might be wondering, I I thought this Messiah was supposed to be the Prince of Peace. Didn't the angels announce at his birth, recorded in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. This persecution he's predicting doesn't sound much like the peace I've been expecting. Well, so here in verse 34, Jesus corrects their expectations. Don't think that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. He came not to bring peace, he says, but a sword. The sword he's talking about is not an an actual physical weapon. Jesus is not a a weapons manufacturer. No, he's using it as a metaphor for for division and separation, a sword that, that cuts If peace is the cessation of hostilities, he brings its opposite, what he's calling here a a sword. This is confirmed in the parallel of this account in in Luke 12, 51. Luke records Jesus' words, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Division. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He himself is, as as Paul says in Ephesians 2, our peace. But the peace he brings is first and foremost with God. You see, peace was one of the casualties of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. They lost their their peace with God and, and even with one another. They felt shame and hid themselves. Their first son murdered their second But in Christ, peace with God is is restored. We are reconciled to God in Him. And this peace that He gives, gives us also peace with with everyone else who has likewise been reconciled. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say, He has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So just as Jesus brings a new peace with God, and unity with those in Christ, he also brings a new division to those outside of Christ. We've put on a new jersey, as it were. We've switched to the opposing team. Jesus goes on in in verse 35 to, to show how these new hostilities will show up. He says, man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Happy Mother's Day. Briefly in 36, he says, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He refers here to Micah chapter 7 verse 6, what we read earlier, family treachery in Israel now showing up in resistance to Christ and his disciples. Jesus, in these few verses, is teaching that that new allegiance to Christ will create new divisions, even in our most intimate and closest worldly relationships in the family. To to be clear, Jesus is, is not teaching his disciples that they themselves will have new hostilities. It is that that others will have new hostilities to them. Do you do you understand the difference? People will be opposed to us, not the the other way around. 
Jesus has already taught His disciples how they are to treat their enemies. Back in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45, He makes it absolutely clear that that Christians are not to hate. They're not to hate those that oppose Him. There He taught them, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Love your enemies because this is like how God loves your Father in heaven. Rain and sun, he, he loves the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Paul puts the idea similarly in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where he, he instructs Christ's disciples this way. He says, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So for, for our part, we aim to live peaceably with all. We are not the ones who bring the sword. But the tragic truth is that our allegiance to Christ will lead others to live at war with us. When you think of that word enemy, enemy, who do you think of? The the Nazis are a popular choice. Or for the science fiction crowd, zombies. Or maybe worst of all, Nazi zombies, back from the dead. Normally, I I think that we think of enemies as those who oppose us with the the worst kind of evil imaginable, like Nazi zombies. But, But here, Jesus is speaking of divisions within the world. The people that we love the most, our very own flesh and blood. Jesus speaks from his own experience. Members of his own family, at least for a time, did not believe in him and ridiculed him in opposition. After a period of healing and casting out demons with crowds pressing all around him, Mark 3.21 reports, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Or later in Mark 6.4, he says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus' family called him insane. His relatives gave him no honor. And if this is true for our master and teacher, it will be true for some of his disciples. A person's enemies will be those of his own household opposed by families. Our association with Jesus will radically reorient who opposes us. Years ago, I had the privilege of of leading a small group with a girl who I'll call Nicole. She was from Mongolia and was here in Northern Virginia uh, working at a dry cleaners while she was in community college. By God's grace, she heard the gospel through a Christian man who regularly brought his laundry to her dry cleaners. She was invited to church, and long story short, she eventually professed faith in Christ and was baptized. 
But when her father heard of it, he cut off all of her support. He refused to to pay for her tuition, leaving her high and dry. The only way that, that he would pay for her schooling again was for her to denounce Christ, to, to leave the church and to return to her family's shamanism. What Nicole experienced is exactly what Jesus is predicting for his, his disciples, that he came to bring a sword. Brothers and sisters, some of us know all too well what Jesus is talking about. Some of us have have parents and and children opposed to us because of our allegiance to Christ. Their hostility might not be as overt and and threatening as what happened to Nicole, but all the same, they're they're opposed to us, not on our our team. The, The gospel brings division in families where our hearts most desire harmony and peace. There are few things in this world as as painful as seeing the the people that we love the most reject the the only source of our hope and and comfort. To see our our family willingly embrace their sin and, and take sides against God. To continue toward toward destruction. Where is it that that we can go in the midst of, of this sorrow? Where did Nicole go for help in that time of need? Well, look, look around you. When Nicole lost the support of her family, it was, it was the church who became her new family, who worked together to pay her tuition, to provide her housing, to offer her love and support when her family rejected her. Jesus, when, when he was opposed by his family here on earth, taught his disciples who was his family. Matthew 12, 48 says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In the church, we are adopted into a new family, brothers and sisters with the same heavenly Father, When with Jesus our family bonds are radically reoriented, here, sitting around you, is God's provision. It's appropriate, especially today, to to point out that the church is a place for new spiritual mothers as well. In the family of God, women are called to be mothers to their spiritual family. So for those who have have lost children, or those who long to be mothers, or those who have lost mothers. Sisters, around you is God's provision, mothers and and children in God's family. Members of Stafford Baptist Church, we have, have covenanted to love one another in membership like family. Our commitment to one another as a church to to care for one another is to be like the best of family relationships. So I ask, are are you making the members of this church a priority like you would your own blood? How can you love and and bear with 
the brothers and sisters in this church like they are brothers and sisters? Who among us is, is lonely and opposed that you can provide the comfort of a sibling to? As your pastor, I am always encouraged to see how this church is, in fact, living as a family in, in love toward one another, writing notes, delivering meals, doing laundry, comforting in pain. So, brothers and sisters, as you are doing, do so more and more. And as you do, you show not only that, that Jesus has, has made us a family, but that Jesus himself is your greatest love. When Jesus radically reorients our relationships, not only does it bring new opposition, but also new love. So let's look at verse 37 in our second point. Jesus reorients who we love. Remember, we read earlier that Jesus taught us to, to love our enemies, those who oppose us. We don't just love those who, who love us. Following Jesus means a radical reorientation of who we love. Well, in that radical reorientation, who is now the supreme object of our love? More than in, in verse 37, even father or mother. More than even son or daughter. More than even self in verse 38. Well, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus in these verses is, is not calling us to love our family less he is calling us to love him all the more. Let's, let's say you have a simple scale in front of you. Not, not a digital one, but the, the ancient one that you know, Lady Justice holds, a, a beam of balance. Two plates suspended, equal distance from a center fulcrum. There are two ways to change how that scale balances, right? The first is to remove weight from one side. Well, the other is to add weight to the other. Jesus in these verses is calling us to love him more than father or mother, more than son and daughter. In other words, don't remove weight from one side, the side of love for family. The way to bring proper balance is to add weight to the side of love for Jesus. In the words of John Calvin, Jesus does not indeed enjoin us to lay aside human affection or forbid us to discharge the duties of relationship, but only desires that all the mutual love which exists among men should be so regulated as to assign the highest rank to piety. Let the husband then love his wife and the father his son, and on the other hand, let the son love his father, provided that the reverence which is due to Christ be not overpowered by human affection. Think of it this way. If the only way for you to love Jesus more is to love other things less, what does that say about Jesus? Well, it says that love for him is, is not very compelling. But think of the opposite. If you love other things like your family so much, but still love Jesus so much more, how good must that Jesus be? That's what Jesus is calling us to in these verses. He's radically reorienting our love, not by weakening it for others, but by strengthening it for him. 
He is so bold in these verses to say that that anyone who doesn't love him like this is not worthy of him. Twice in verse 37. He means that, that such a disciple doesn't have what it takes to follow him. Supreme love for Jesus is just basic to what it means to be a Christian. It is the one love that orients all our other loves, even love for ourself. That's what Jesus goes on to describe in in verses 38 and 39. The call to follow Jesus in supreme love is a call to love Him even more than self. It is a call to die to self. He describes His disciple as one who, who picks up His cross to follow Him. Unfortunately, we are so familiar with the image of the cross that I think it's lost some of its strength. Jesus here is referring to that that top crossbar that condemned criminals in Rome would carry for themselves to the site of their execution. There they would be nailed or or tied to that beam and then the criminal would be attached to, to an upright beam already planted in the ground where they would die by exhaustion or asphyxiation. Crucifixion was not only an excruciating way to die, it was also demeaning. Carrying the cross meant meant public shaming as you were led to your death. You would be executed near a road in in public to be seen and, and mocked. How about that as a metaphor for discipleship, for following Jesus? Pick up your cross. We sometimes talk about having a cross to bear, some trial that we have to endure under. But that often doesn't convey just how extreme this metaphor is. Jesus is calling us to love him so supremely that we would willingly, to be with him, go through public ridicule, through injustice and and torturous death to be with him. And again, this is not for the super spiritual Christians. This is how every disciple is called to love Jesus. In other words, we're to love him more than even our own life. That's what verse 39 is all about. He talks about those who find their life. It's the idea of of preserving your life rather than being willing to go to death by a cross. To those, Jesus says... If you find your life, you will lose it. The path to finding true life is losing it for Jesus. If you love yourself supremely, you will experience death. Not just the end of physical life, but but eternal separation from God. But if you give up your life for Jesus' sake, out of love for Him and His kingdom, then he says, you will find life, eternal life. Friends, what is, what is life about? What do you live for? If, if someone analyzed your words, your actions, your time from the past week, what would they conclude that you live your life for? Life's not about yourself. It's about Jesus. Your true purpose is to love Jesus and deny yourself. 
This statement flies in the face of modern culture that says fulfillment is found in self-realization, being true to yourself. Our world looks for love in all the wrong places. This is the paradox that that life and, and your true purpose is only found in denying yourself and living for Jesus. If you seek life anywhere else, you will never find it. God hasn't put it there. If you're listening this morning and you don't consider yourself a, a follower of Christ, thank you for being here. Does any of this sound appealing to you? The promise of real and true life? Where does this kind of love come from? Stronger than our natural love for, for family and, and self. And, and to you too, Christian, how? How is it that we can grow in this kind of love for Jesus? Well, let me suggest for us three quick things this morning. First, first, this kind of love comes from forgiveness. Jesus teaches us in Luke 7:47 that he who is forgiven little loves little. This kind of love is, is not manufactured by willpower. Love, this supreme, comes from a true understanding of what we deserve in our sin and what God offers in forgiveness. Our love comes from being stunned by God's love. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that each of us deserves eternal condemnation from God. Our love for sin is not just a preference, it is a great moral evil. To love anything more than the most lovely thing in the universe, God Himself reveals that we are morally bankrupt on our own. So God would be just to to damn us for our love of of what is evil. But in, in His love, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins. He lived the life that we ought to have lived in perfect love and obedience to God. And on the cross, He he died in in our place. And three days later, raised from the dead so that we can be forgiven of our sins. All who turn away from their sin and place their faith in, in this man's life, death, and resurrection are restored to God and promised in Him eternal life in a perfect new world to come. That kind of love What we deserve and what we get, that kind of love is stunning. If you want to grow in your love for God, this is the path. The more you understand the depth of your sin and the heights of God's love, the more it will create in you love for Him. Little love for God is evidence of little understanding of your sin and its forgiveness. So first, the measure of your love will be equal to the measure of your understanding of the depth of your sins and the height of His forgiveness. But but second, love for Jesus comes in enjoying Him in everything else. To love God more does not require us to, to love things less, maybe only relatively. You don't need to put vinegar in your cake so you enjoy the things of the world less in order to love God more. 
No, rather, in, in the sweetness of that cake, or in the love of the family, or the beauty of a painting, or whatever else you enjoy, enjoy Jesus in every gift. I consider in my own life, as I fall in love with my little baby Asa, as wonderful as he is, how much more wonderful must Jesus be if babies are this great? So next time you enjoy something, make your next thought be, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. But, but third, love for Jesus comes by obeying Him. Jesus teaches that if you love me, you will obey what I command. Yes, obedience is, is proof of our love, but it also creates deeper love. Take, for example, His commandment here to, to take up our cross and follow Him. It might sound intimidating, maybe dangerous. Does this person have our best interests in mind when he calls us to such things? Well, his promise is that as you do, you will find life. And so with all of his commands, when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you regularly gather with the church, when you give generously, when you share the gospel, when you submit to authority, and more and more, when you do what Jesus commands, you will find that it is good. You will find that in it, He loves you. And in it, you will find your joy and love for Him. You know, brothers and sisters, that, that love for God, what we're talking about here is at the core of what we're made for. It's why we exist. This is the first and greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Your entire being is to be directed toward this great task. Love to God. And nothing could be better. To, to grow in love, the, the core of what we are made for. Understand your forgiveness. Enjoy Jesus in every gift and obey Him. The third and finally our, our third point in verses 40 through 42, Jesus reorients who we serve. In the last verses here, Jesus talks to his disciples directly for the first time. He says, he says you. He returns talking about their coming mission as his messengers. As they go, some will receive them into their homes. Those that do, he says, will also receive him. And whoever receives him receives him who sent him, God the Father. You know, we, we've seen this principle before. We saw earlier to hate the teacher is to hate the disciple. Now, the positive, to love the teacher is to love and serve the disciple. Jesus reorients who we love and as a result, here who we serve. In verse 40, love for Jesus looks like serving, receiving his messengers. In verse 41 and 42, he goes on beyond his disciples to expand the principle from prophets to righteous men to little ones. It seems from the greatest in the kingdom to, to the least in his kingdom. Anyone who is a disciple of Christ is to be served just as we would serve Christ himself. And that service can be as small, he says, as a cup of water. In verse 42, given to the little one because 
he is a disciple. It's, it's something like a wartime mentality. It isn't just the frontline soldiers whose work matters as much as it does. It's also the, the factory workers back home, the mothers making dresses out of feed sacks, right? It all serves the same purpose. It's all part of the, the war effort. So too, it isn't just the 12 apostles on their mission who serve Christ. Those who receive them serve Christ. Anyway, we deny ourselves and, and put the needs of others first because they are a disciple of Christ is a way that we too serve Christ. Take the hospitality like these first disciples received. Hospitality in the, the Bible is literally a love for the stranger. Strangers, just like these traveling disciples would be as they go. When we think of hospitality, our ears, our ears hear it as hosting a meal in your home. And, and it certainly can be that. And please do that. But it also means greeting the newcomer to our gathering. So serve Christ by saying hello to someone you don't know. And hospitality is, is not the only way we serve the least and the forgotten in the kingdom. We can organize help to clean. We can deliver meals to the sick. We can babysit, write notes, give gifts. I could go on. Basic acts of love and kindness. I'd encourage you, brothers and sisters, to consider who in our family who in our family that we can serve in whatever small way in the coming week to be motivated by love for God, to love your neighbor as yourself. We serve others because Jesus has reoriented who we serve. I wonder if you noticed in these last verses how Jesus motivates our service. Three times he promises reward, reward. Reward, and in particular, the same reward. Service to a prophet earns a prophet's reward, and so with the righteous. You'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promised his disciples that our, our Father sees everything we do, even in secret, and rewards us. Here he doesn't tell us exactly what this reward might be, but, but I have a suggestion. Let me read to you Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus promised his disciples the reward of a hundredfold brothers and sisters and mothers and children in this time. Part of our reward in, in serving disciples is, is the provision of the global family of God visible here in this local church. Reward isn't just what you wait for from heaven. Yes, he mentions eternal life in the age to come. We wait for that. But it's also this new family the blessings of the gospel is not just what we get in the age to come. Jesus came to live the life that we ought to. He died the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven today. 
so that we can have new life today, so that we can be adopted into a new family today. Brothers and sisters, as you enjoy forgiveness and new life from God, enjoy the gift of this family, one another. The the gift that we have from God by grace is a new orientation to Him and to, to everyone else. For some, that means division and heartache in our homes. But Jesus is worthy of our greatest love more than our very lives. And for His sake, we serve all those that bear His name. Jesus radically reorients who opposes us, who we love, and who we serve. Let's pray. Father, it is sweet to call you by that name this morning. We call you Father, Lord, because you have adopted us by grace into your family. Lord, that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die. Lord, you bear the penalty that our sins deserve so that in him we might become your children. That in him we might become part of the family of God. Lord, we thank you that in him he radically reorients all of our relationships. Lord, in the midst of opposition, give us grace to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to endure, even in this great pain. And Father, in the midst of all of that, Lord, would you give grace that we would have hearts that love Jesus above all other things. Lord, knowing that in him, in love for him, we will find our life. Lord, as we do so, as we love him, help us to serve one another in this family of God. We pray this all in his name. Amen.